Well, hi, folks. Thanks for joining me once again uh, for If You Bite and Devour. We're going to be in chapter two, and I want to dive right into it today. Uh, This uh, chapter uh, is called uh, Act in Love. Uh, and it's going to highlight the, the biblical fact that all of our actions, all of our thoughts, uh, all of our words, all of our interactions, um, everything, our conversations, uh, everything should be based in and spring forth from a place of love. Uh, and I know that the immediate uh, thought of probably most of us is, that's impossible, uh, that's unrealistic. Uh, if you only knew some of the things that were said to me or the conversations or circumstances I'm in, how can you possibly expect everything to be uh, springing forth from a place of love. And um, I think that that actually is a, a true assessment, that it is quite impossible for us, uh, very unrealistic for us, uh, to uh, expect that everything is going to be uh, springing forth from a place of love, uh, but not because of the circumstances. Now, I don't think that's impossible because of what we go through, uh, or impossible because of what uh, people say to us or do to us, uh, I think it's impossible uh, because of us, uh, because of our own hearts, uh, because of the, the war that's going on inside of us. Um, after all, we know that Jesus himself, he endured this world uh, yet without sin. Uh, and so he had all the external uh, circumstances and situations going on around him, all kinds of uh, oppressive things that were happening to him, and yet he didn't sin. So it's, it's, it's not that that's out there. Uh, it's what's in here. That's what makes this so impossible in ourselves, in our own flesh. Uh, so uh, I'm not saying that it is um, possible uh, for us to be sinless, uh, but I think it is possible for us to not sin. And that might sound like the same thing, but it is very different. Um, I, I don't think it's possible for us to be sinless at all. Uh, we know that, but, uh, but it is possible now because we have the Holy Spirit in us, because we have God's Word guiding us, uh, because we've been given a new heart living in this old body, this old body of flesh. It is now possible for us uh, to not sin. Uh, we know that God always gives us a way out, uh, out of our temptation. Uh, so we can't say, uh, we, we, can't, we can't blame circumstances or whatever on our sin, on our choice to not do things out of love. Uh, we have to know that it, uh, it, it's us. Uh, and so we have uh, the, the choice to make to either obey the Spirit uh, and, and fight for the Spirit's uh, continual victory in our lives, or we can just kind of give up easy and say, well, that's impossible, the circumstances and this and this. Uh, so, in ourselves, impossible to do this, clearly, uh, but possible for us to choose to not sin, possible for us to act in love and to learn to grow in that uh, because of the work of the Spirit inside of us. Uh, so, when we're tempted to say things like, well, but, but what about this? Uh, our default should not be thinking that there are some justified times when we're allowed to speak out of love or in a place of being uh, snarky or complaining or, or out of bitterness or anger, uh, callously being out of step with love. Uh, our default should actually be that God has, God has given me an opportunity to act in love here. I don't want to. I want to I say this or say that, and I want to say it in this way or that way. But our default should be, okay, this is going to be impossible for me to do on my own, but God has given me a way out through His Spirit uh, and through the work in my heart. Uh, so our default should not be something that easily justifies us uh, or doing things or saying things that's right in our own wisdom, our own eyes, uh, but rather a default should be, this is an opportunity for me to learn to grow and react in step with the Spirit and in step with love. So uh, let's jump into it. We're going to be uh, in page 23 here. 
Um, kind of starting at the at the bottom here. He tells a story about a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who's a, a great um, theologian uh, and author, uh, who uh, taught that um, Christians, believers, this is the last paragraph, are not to be known for only our uncompromising stand for the truth of Scripture, which is what we're commonly known for, but also we should be known simultaneously for the unwavering love for one another, even when we disagree. Fighting for truth and right doctrine and the purity of the church must be balanced with love and grace. To speak the truth and to act in love simultaneously, to use Schaefer's terminology, requires the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Balancing truth and love cannot be done in the flesh. Now, under number one there, love defines how to act when facing conflict. You can skip down to the second paragraph. Paul's insistence on practicing love in the midst of conflict is evident in his dealings with the church in Corinth. Although the Corinthians prided themselves on their knowledge and giftedness, they were infamous for their contentiousness and infighting. They lacked love and consequently were tearing the church down, not building it up. They were dividing the church, not uniting it. They were subverting God's work, not enhancing it. Now, one of the toughest things about being human is that we're not God. Uh, so to do these things perfectly, to have uh, speaking the truth and standing up for truth and right doctrine, but also doing it in a way that is out of love and in love and uh, and is seasoned with love, uh, that's really, really difficult for us to do. Uh, it's easy for us to be one thing at one time and then be something else at another time. We can stand up for truth here, uh, maybe be just kind of self-righteous and callous, and then over here, we can be very loving and merciful and gracious, but it's really hard for us to do both. Um, sometimes we're bold in uh, speaking the truth. Uh, other times we're soft in giving love. Uh, but God is not like this. Uh, this is not how he is. Um, he is never only speaking truth with no love. And he's never just being loving and gracious without speaking truth. Uh, he's always whole and he always acts uh, in uh, totality. Uh, he's always complete. But we have a hard time in doing this. This is why Dr. Strzok says we can't do this in the flesh. We have to always, always, always be checking ourselves, checking our motives, che checking our tone, our speech, our thoughts, our hearts, especially in the midst of conflict or challenge. Uh, and, and this could be in your marriage. This could be with parenting. Uh, this could be uh, in, uh, in the life of, of church, uh, your friends, co-workers. Uh, it could be anything. Anytime you face conflict or a challenge, uh, and, and we do this every single day, we do this in our families, we do this in our friendships, uh, we're often tempted to react and respond in a way that is not as loving as it should be. We'll usually f uh, fall on one side or the other. This is why he points out Paul's writing to the Corinthians at the bottom of page 24 here. So go to the last sentence of page 24. Paul was writing to a church in conflict, and we have to understand his message in that context. Uh, so here's 1 Corinthians 13, very famous uh, section of scripture. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, after listing, this is uh, Dr. Strzok here um, on page 25, after listing two positive qualities of love, which is patient and kind, he then lists eight vices that are totally incompatible with love. 
Each of these vices expresses sinful self-centeredness that creates and exacerbates conflict and tears apart relationships. These sins are the work of the flesh. They dominated the church in Corinth, and they continue to generate conflict in churches and in the personal lives of Christians today. When we demand our way and our selfish desires are frustrated, we fight and we quarrel. This is how James describes the workings of our selfish desire. So here's in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is a great question. I want to know what causes this. What causes conflict? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? So there is a war, a battle going on with inside of us. You desire and you don't have, and so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. But genuine Christian love, in contrast, is not preoccupied with self, it's not puffed up with pride, it's not easily provoked to anger, and doesn't hold grudges or seek revenge. Christian love is displayed in the love of Jesus, who laid down his life for us, as an example that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, these other attitudes that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, these other eight uh, vices, as he calls them, are incompatible with Christianity, incompatible with love. There's no way to justify these things. And I love that Dr. Strzok points out that uh, though we use this section of scripture in things like weddings and on coffee cups and with friendships and those types of things, that's fine that we do because it's all true. Uh, but he was particularly writing to a very divisive, cantankerous church. Uh, and so look again at this, 1 Corinthians 13. So imagine now this church that is slinging grenades back and forth at each other. They're being divisive. They're priding themselves. They're showing off their uh, theological acumen to each other. Uh, they're, um, they're, just, they're, they're boasting in their own knowledge towards each other. And here's what he says to them. Uh, Love is patient and kind. So you Corinthians, you ought to be patient with each other. You got to be kind to one another. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. You don't say, well, this is how I think things should be done. Uh, I think it should be like this. They shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Well, these are some uh, very uh, big words here, uh, very common words, common in the sense of the actions, being irritable. Uh, it's almost considered wisdom these days if we're irritated at things. If we're irritated at the news and irritated at whatever uh, comes down the pipeline, uh, we're considered wise because we know something special. So irritation shows that we're informed and all these things. And it's just, it's, it's arrogance. Uh, it's all it is is self-righteousness to show this irritation. We're above all this stuff. And so we're showing our intellect by being irritated. It's, uh, it's, it's like a, um, it's a virtue today to be irritable or resentful or to insist on your own way because you're showing your strength. It's, it's crazy. This is the opposite of what God's word says we should be. Now, the Corinthians were very gifted, spiritually gifted, very smart, very spiritual, quote-unquote, or at least they thought they were, but their actions and their attitudes were lacking big time. They had the head knowledge. They had the theological knowledge. Uh, they had the spiritual maturity, so to speak, uh, but their actions and their heart, and their motive, their attitudes, not even close. Not mature, not spiritual. They lacked big time. This is the same section of scripture when Paul says, look, you could be the greatest theologian, have all wisdom, know the answers to everything. You could even be burned at the stake for your face. So some pretty big stuff. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. 
Again, strong words, but this is from the word of God. We can't argue with this. And so we have to think about these things and say, look, it doesn't matter how smart or wise we are or how irritable we are because we don't like how this is or that is or that, that person does this or says this or watches this show or, or how our kids do this or our spouse does this. If we don't have love towards those people, we have nothing. Uh, I can't tell you how many times um, I've had a, a sentence begin uh, towards me from someone saying, you know, I'm a mature believer, but blah, 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 complain, complain, complain uh, pointing out flaws, whatever it might be. Um, it always ends with some kind of a hollow reasoning for why some kind of attitude or, or uh, character trait or flaw is somehow admissible by that person. Uh, so we kind of, we, we sort of thinly cloak ourselves behind our, our time we've known the Lord or uh, some kind of experience that tells us we're mature or whatever. We hide behind that, that thin veil to somehow um, uh, defend a, a sinful attitude or sinful character trait. And it's, it's wrong. It's, it is not biblical. Uh, it's sin to do this. Uh, these eight traits are not compatible with Christian love. Okay, so back to page uh, 26. Uh, kind of at the uh, top uh, second paragraph there. Don't be caught off guard. When we face conflict, Paul's instructions on love from 1 Corinthians 13 define how we should and should not behave. Before a potentially, oh, this is a, I love this section here. Before a potentially explosive meeting or a tense personal confrontation, so you know it's coming, you're setting an appointment, whatever it might be, review in your mind the biblical description of love. This is this is good, good, wise counsel here. Remember that love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. So choose, choose to walk in love by the power of the Spirit. Remind yourself of how love does and doesn't act. Decide beforehand how you should respond towards those with whom you disagree. Don't let love be the missing element in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I, so many times, uh, and I haven't done this always. Uh, this is something I've just I've learned more. I think probably the last eight years or so, um, eight or nine years maybe, uh, and increasingly uh, getting better at doing this, choosing to do this. Um, but I, I choose beforehand not what I'm going to say in a conversation. Uh, that was kind of how I, I used to do. Um, you know, you, you do this. I do this still. Um, I honestly, I do this still where. You know, when you know you're going to have a conversation, you kind of go through, okay, well, if they say this, then I'm going to say that. And if they say this, I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to respond. You kind of get all this stuff. I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't want to do that where I'm just kind of getting locked and loaded. Uh, and when I do that, uh, I'm going in. That, that tells me I'm going in for a fight. Uh, I'm going in to, to sling back. Uh, and I just, I've been trying in the last, you know, probably eight years or so to do that less and less and less over the course of eight years. Um now, what instead what I do is what Dr. Strock says here, um, and this is what I've been aiming to do with myself, is not so much load up my answers, but load up my, my tone, uh, load up my, my heart's response, my, the place of my heart. Um, if my heart is in the right place, in a good place, in a scriptural, biblical place, uh, my answers in the moment, whatever comes at me, are going to be flavored with love and peace and graciousness and gentleness. Uh, rather than wanting to fight back or prove myself. Uh, so the old Joby used to uh, more habitually 
uh, kind of get all my answers and try to figure out everything that is going to be said. I'm not saying there's no wisdom in trying to think through, um, you know, what the conversation is. Uh, but when I'm doing it in a way where I'm like, I'm prepared to go into battle, that that's not a good place. I, I'm going in on the offensive uh, and I don't want to do that. Um, and I, and I don't want to go in also even defensive in the sense of just defending myself and, and, and fighting in that way. Uh, but I want to go in rather just preparing my heart, uh, for the conversation, uh, my heart towards the person, uh, my heart towards the Lord. Uh, and that's a radically different thing, uh, than getting yourself locked and loaded and, and ready for a fight. Uh, but we, I think we, by default, kind of get ourselves ready for the fight, uh, rather than getting ourselves ready to really hide ourselves in Christ, uh, hide ourselves uh, in uh, the love of God towards us so that we can um, clothe ourselves in that as we go into conversation. So I, I love that section there, um, deciding beforehand how you should respond towards those with whom you disagree. Make that decision beforehand. Um, make a decision to go in uh, with your springboard being love and graciousness. Uh, so then number two says, um, love doesn't seek revenge for wrong suffered. Now you can skip down to the um, second paragraph there. Um, Jesus, uh, in contrast, Jesus taught and lived by the principle of non-retaliation. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, he said, turn to him the other also. That was from Matthew chapter 5. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Thomas Schreiner describes Jesus' silence in suffering as, quote, the most remarkable evidence of his non-retaliatory spirit, since the urge for revenge can be almost unbearable when mistreatment takes place, end quote. So following Jesus' teaching and example, Paul and Peter prohibit the get-even mentality that is so much a part of human nature. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. And in 1 Peter 3, it says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. And Peter also says, when he, was, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. So Jesus entrusted himself to God. He didn't take things, matters into his own hands. When someone insults us, we're not to return the insult. When cursed, we're not to curse back. When someone strikes us, we're not to strike back. When treated maliciously, we're not to retaliate. We're to be different from those who do us evil. Instead of returning evil for evil, we are to walk in love and not become like our enemies or those with whom we fight. Love desires to reconcile and repair relationships. It leaves past injustices in God's hands. Thus, the scripture forbids personal vengeance or taking justice into our own hands. The scripture says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It is God's prerogative to punish evil, and he has given authority to human governments and to courts and judges to punish evildoers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 again says, love is not resentful, uh, meaning it doesn't keep a record of wrongs in order to get even. Love doesn't nurse grudges or picket old wounds. It doesn't dwell obsessively on grievances. In short, love lowers the temperature of most conflicts by refusing to engage in retaliation. I think this is one of the toughest things for us to learn, uh, and especially now when it's so easy, especially on social media and whatever, it's easy to obsess over things that bother us uh, and then lob things back and forth. And, uh, or it might be something that happens in your family. You know, your kids do the same thing over and over again, or whatever it might be, or, or your spouse does. 
Uh, this is one of the hardest things I think for us to do is to not seek our own uh, retaliation and revenge, uh, especially when people uh, come at you. Um, and I think this even has to do with uh, public figures even. Um, and I, I think we have to really watch ourselves uh, in how we respond uh, with our words, with our actions, with our heart, with our tone. Um, for myself, uh, I know this has been um, one of the more difficult things uh, because I've, I've had a lot of things said to me over the years uh, that, that are hard to not take personal. Sometimes they're intended to be personal even, uh, personal attacks. And um, I have to choose rather than to um, retaliate or say something back or speak up or whatever, I choose to hide myself uh, in Christ. And I think I've been saying this a lot in um, our church services uh, recently, uh, but to some of my favorite uh, words of the Lord uh, and, and descriptions of Him are His Him being our fortress, our shelter, our strong tower, um, the, the rock in whom uh, we, we stand upon. Um, and I think those words became kind of my um, sort of place of safety a lot uh, in the last um, probably eight years or so. Uh, I remember specifically even when we were first uh, planting the church, and I kind of knew um, that uh, I knew the enemy would be uh, after me, uh, after my family, uh, in different ways, and uh, I, I figured there'd be some kinds of um, you know uh, gossip or uh, things being said or um, you know all kinds of stuff. Uh, I kind of knew that and kind of expected that this is what was going to happen, and and, and I I um, I take very serious my my reputation. Um, and uh, I, I do that, I think, largely because I, I think that uh, I tie my reputation to the reputation of, of Christians and the church and Christ. Uh, I want to represent him well, um, but I know it's also a bit of, you know, just kind of self-righteousness and pride. Um, but, um, but I remember thinking I didn't want people saying this or that about me or whatever because um, I, I didn't want it to reflect poorly uh, if people believe certain things. And uh, and so there's a temptation in me to uh, to speak out against certain things that are being said about me, uh, things that were um, that I was hearing uh, from others. Um, but I chose very uh, conscientiously to um, to hide myself in Christ and let Him be my defense, uh, and let um, the the fruit of my life uh, and um, our our church and um, all those things, I, I let those things kind of speak uh, for me rather than me try to, you know, come to my own defense or whatever. And, and that was really tough for me to do. Um, for my wife and I to go through um, a, a very long season of that uh, was very difficult. And, um, but we chose not to um, kind of fight back uh, and um, defend ourselves and, um, you know, sling back uh, grenades, whatever it was. We just um, did what we could just to, to trust in the Lord. Uh, and that was difficult. Um, but again, I think that this uh, response is, is hard for us to do, and I, I think it does apply uh, not just to friends and family, but also I think even to, to, to public figures too, and a lot of the stuff that we see going on. Uh, what we see going on with, um, I think, in the news and, and uh, social media, whatever, I think this is, like a, this is a great training ground for us as Christians, because um, how we even speak about public figures, uh, I think we need to be very careful and cautious uh, I'm not saying there's uh, no way to address disagreements, uh, particularly with public figures, but we tend to kind of think that because they're public figures, we'll never meet them. We can, it's like, it's like open season on them. We can say whatever we want. We can act however we want because they're not actual friends. Uh, I have a general um, 
thing in, in my head when it comes to, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm preaching myself right here, so don't, I, I know I don't do this uh, right, uh, perfectly, but I have this general thing in my head, like when I think about public figures that I want to say bad things about or whatever, I have this general thought in my head of what if that person walked into our church service on a Sunday morning? Um, have I been treating them fairly uh, with gentleness, kindness? Doesn't mean I don't speak truth, especially if it's something like a public policy or something that's going on culturally. We can still speak truth. I'm not saying we be quiet, but we have to learn how to speak truth in love. So if we're going to speak out against uh, this person or that person, it shouldn't be in a slanderous way. It shouldn't be in a um, a callous way, a bitter way, uh, a rude way, uh, all those different ways that are incompatible with Christian love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm not saying there's no way to address public disagreements, public policy, um, particularly with public figures, but there are definitely sinful ways of doing that. Uh, and I'm not going to you know, go through and you know, every single sinful or non-sinful way and what I think is, uh, but it's something we can't take for granted that there are sinful ways to respond even to public figures, and there are um, biblical, God-honoring ways to do so, speaking the truth still, but yet from a place of love. Um, when we speak about those whom we disagree with, um, even if it's someone you never know, you got to remember, this is why I say it's like a training ground. We're doing reps. We're training our hearts. We're training our minds uh, to, to respond to disagreements in a certain way. So if you're doing this over and over and over and over and over again with public figures or things in the news, that, that muscle memory is going to translate into your marriage. It's going to translate into how you raise your kids. It's going to translate into your real flesh and blood relationships. So if you are exercising and doing these reps over and over and obsessing over things in the news and talking bad about all these people in a way that is not honoring to the Lord, uh, but in a way that is uh, described by those eight vices in 1 Corinthians 13, you're getting good at that and you're going to build up that muscle. And now when something here happens in quote unquote real life, now it's going to be so much easier for you to respond this way than respond in the biblical way. So I'm just saying, be careful, uh, first, because you're doing this before the Lord, uh, and, and, but also your heart and the training of your heart is at stake here. And, and not only that, but remember, uh, your kids are listening to you. Uh, your friends are listening to you and seeing you online and whatever. Uh, and most importantly, above all things, the Lord is ever before you. Uh, and you're going to stand before him, and he's going to ask why you spoke about this person, that person, in that sinful way, in a way that is unbecoming to uh, Christians. So again, we, we speak truth, uh, we stand up for what is right, but we do it in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. This is why Dr. Strzok's saying we can't do this in the flesh. And don't assume that your natural reaction is in the spirit, because uh, there is a war going on inside of our hearts. So even if your response is totally... Uh, justified. Uh, you're speaking out against something that's clearly sinful. That That's great. You you should speak out against those things. Um, but you can do that in a wrong way. Uh, you're not off the hook to then just respond however you want. Okay, so uh, back to uh, page 28 here. Uh, we'll be at uh, number three. Love overcomes evil through prayer, forbearance, and kindness. The world loves the sweet music of revenge. And this is so true. We love, we love this. 
We've even turned them into memes. Memes are the best way to get revenge on someone these days. Just gonna, just leaving this here. Just gonna, just putting this here. Uh, you know, just these mic drop moments. We love just quick, witty, little tidbits of revenge and funny little photos. Uh, so the world loves the sweet music or the sweet imagery of revenge. But God loves the sweet music of prayer, forbearance, and kindness. So when we're hurt or treated unjustly, we're to handle the conflict with God-like forbearance and Christ-like kindness. Okay, so go to letter A, prayer. In a culture where hatred for one's enemies and seeking personal revenge um, were not only acceptable practices, but refined art forms, right? Like I was saying earlier, that's like a virtue these days. Jesus's radical statements on love must have shocked his followers. Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Whether people, or when people, whether they're believers or non-believers, abuse or persecute us, we're to respond with the most positive, proactive display of love possible. Jesus doesn't call us to be passive martyrs who merely grin and bear it. We're to actively bless those who wrong us and not curse them. That's what Romans and 1 Peter say. Our Lord wants us to pray that God would have mercy on and change the hearts of those who persecute and abuse us. Such prayer uh, is a key element in dealing with conflict in a God-honoring way. So, when we pray for those who wrong us, the Holy Spirit transforms our character, making us more like Christ. All right, skip down to letter B here. Uh, In this life, we'll suffer many hurts and injustices, even from friends and relatives. When Christians are wronged, we are to respond in love. Let's go to the next page here. Um, Go to kind of the the middle of that first paragraph. The little prepositional phrase, in love, from Ephesians uh, chapter 4, bearing with one another, in love. In love is very important. If we don't forbear in love... Our forbearance could result in resentment or anger rather than love. Uh, So if we don't persevere and have patience for someone in love, but we're just rather just kind of bottling, well, then we're just kind of stuffing things down and that's going to turn into bitterness. So if we're going to endure with people and have patience with people, we have to do it in love. And this is where you need the Holy Spirit because your default is to persevere in frustration or persevere in resentment or persevere in bitterness. Um, And so we want to persevere in love. Uh, Skip down to letter C, kindness. Instead of being, uh, actually go to the second paragraph there, showing kindness demonstrates that we're walking by the Spirit and walking in love even when we are under the emotional stress of interpersonal conflict. All right, go to the next page, uh, 31. Uh, the, the indent, the scripture, 2 Corinthians 6. Um, we put no obstacle, Paul says, in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. So patience uh, comes from trusting God's ways, believing that God's word is the way that we ought to do things, the way we ought to live, we ought to be. Uh, this is how we are able even to put on prayer and put on kindness. We have to first start with a belief that prayer and putting on kindness is the answer, and that is the, the resolution we should seek. 
So if we believe God's ways are better, then that's what even helps us come to a place of prayer. If we don't believe that God's ways are better, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're not going to go in prayer. We're going to just respond and react however we would think. Now, this text from 2 Corinthians that's in page 31 here, uh, so important because in a world where there is today so many things that get in our way, that distract us, that pull us away from gospel centrality, we have to make a decision. What do we want to put in front of people, the people that God has put in our lives, what do we want to put in front of them that's going to be an obstacle in their lives, an obstacle between us and them so that we can't actually share the gospel and share Jesus with them? What do we, what do we think is worth putting in front of them as an obstacle? Is it, is it politics? Is that worth it? Is it worth um, fighting over politics and putting then an obstacle in between you and them or in between them and the gospel? Uh, is your opinion on certain matters, whether it's, you know, masks or whatever, is that worth making such a big deal out of that it's going to put now an obstacle in between you and them so now you're shut off from having good gospel conversations? Uh, your preferences, whatever it might be. Look again at this, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. You have a ministry that God has given you. God has given you the ministry of reconciliation, helping people be reconciled to Christ. You, the individual person, have been given a ministry. Your neighbors, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, you've been given a ministry. And Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So my, my question for you, for me, is am I putting obstacles in between me and other people that prevent me from the ministry that God has given me to be a minister of reconciliation between me and that person? Church, I, I don't want to put any obstacle in anyone's way unless that obstacle, unless that stumbling block is the cross of Christ, unless it's the gospel itself. I'm going to offend people with the gospel. I know that. And I'm fine with that because that's my, my goal is to have them hear and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save them. And I know that's going to offend people. I know people are going to say, well, I don't need a savior. Or that's so narrow-minded that there's only one way or whatever it is. I know that. But if they're going to trip over something I'm going to give them, it better be that. I don't want to trip over all these other things, these peripheral things. I don't want to put any obstacle in between me and someone else that's going to prevent them from being able to have a gospel conversation, a, a loving, genuine, generous conversation, a, a winsome conversation. I, that's what I want to have. I don't want my attitude, my thoughts, my opinions. And it doesn't mean I don't voice my opinions on things. It's just that I choose how I'm going to do it, when I'm going to do it. I, have, I seek out wisdom from the Lord on when and how I uh, let my opinions on, on all kinds of different matters be known. I've got a lot of opinions. I'm a very opinionated person. Um, but I just am very picky and choosy on when and how and where and why I choose to let those opinions be known. But I'm a very, very opinionated person. But I don't want any of those things to become an obstacle uh, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But rather, as a servant of God, I want to commend myself in every way by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, and by genuine love. Okay, so... These things that you have lots of opinions on uh, and politics and the way our world is going, whatever, they're not unimportant things. Okay, don't hear me say that these things are unimportant. But is it worth you putting a hindrance for the gospel between you and them by making those more important than the gospel? To make sure that everyone knows your opinion or stance. Is that the most important thing? 
So these things aren't unimportant, but are they so important that you want to put a hindrance in between you and other people? Um, we're to be kind and patient even with those we disagree with, even as Jesus calls them our enemies. Now, is it the best thing to die on hills that have no real eternal consequence? And in the story on page uh, 31 here, uh, he goes into a story uh, about a confrontation with uh, a man in his church uh, who had a complaint about the music being too loud. And so um, the, the man starts approaching him after church, and I was, as I was reading this, I started to kind of smile because I'm going, oh, I know where he's going with this. Uh, I know that feeling of having someone approach you after church, and you're just going, okay, this is probably going to be something, um, you know, uh, some kind of a complaint or whatever. Uh, and I know this feeling, whether it's a text that comes through or an email, um, you just, I, I hate to admit it, but uh, I sometimes, uh, I, I try not to do this. I'm trying to grow in this, but sometimes I expect um, the worst um, because that's just been kind of a, a common uh, thing is just to, uh, you just kind of know that there's always, you know, some kind of a complaint coming um, any particular day or week. Uh, I try not to live in that default, um, but uh, but it's it's kind of a lingering thing uh, that happens. Uh, I'm always just kind of waiting and expecting. Um, but the story was uh, great, first of all, for me, because um, one, it does hit very close to home, uh, but also um, I've, I've learned a lot um, in my interactions with people over the years. Um, and so in the story uh, that he says, instead of engaging and uh, defending, kind of getting locked and loaded with his responses uh, and arguing, um, rather he actually just, he listens. Uh, he weighs in, um, his mind, whether it's worth disputing, uh, putting a stumbling block between him and this other brother. Um, he probably thinks through to himself, uh, what good would come out of me just come out firing and uh, going on the offensive? Uh, what would actually truly be won? Uh, now, look at his words on uh, 31 at the very bottom. He says, I just, I never said a word. I knew that if I started to argue, the situation would have escalated. Surely the Holy Spirit controlled my emotions, allowing me to stay calm and to overlook his threatening talk and ungracious behavior. Um, now, before we kind of continue on uh, into the next uh, page here, um, I want to share with you just a, a few things that I've learned personally. Uh, some things are just kind of tactics, but things that I've, I've learned uh, in um, de-escalating uh, conflict, uh, having greater self-control, having greater graciousness, uh, choosing to act in love, um, ways that I've kind of learned to do this a bit more. Um, one of the first things I do, especially if it's uh, maybe over uh, email or um, text or something like that, if someone kind of comes at you, uh, they send you a scathing email or um, a kind of an aggressive text or something accusatory, um, one of the first things um, I'll do um, is pretty quickly, maybe after a few back and forth exchanges, just maybe just a couple of back and forth. Um, is uh, I'll ask them to meet in person, um, or at least uh, over the phone, uh, hearing tone of voice, seeing face, uh, facial expressions. Um, I think just presence uh, is very important in, in um, kind of de-escalating things. Um, and so that's something I, I've, I've learned to do a lot is um, to say, uh, let's, uh, let's meet together in person. Um, another thing I do, um, one, especially with an email or a text, um, if it's a long email, for instance, um, and has a lot of different accusations in it, uh, I'll read the email once. Um, I'll read through it one time, um, and um, and I figure whatever sticks. It's kind of like throwing spaghetti at the at the wall, you know. Whatever sticks, 
then when I go to meet with them in person or have the conversation, uh, I'm going to have the conversation about whatever um, most stuck in my mind. I, I want to be fair to them. I, I want to. Uh, I don't want to exegete them and just go, well, you said but instead of and, or uh, I don't want to do that to them. Um, I want to treat the email a bit more like a face-to-face conversation where um, I'm not going to go back and kind of look at game film, so to speak, and just like pick apart every single thing they said or did. And then again, I'm going to be tempted to get locked and loaded and have my 40-point answer for everything they brought up. Um, the biggest things that I feel are the heart of the matter, the, the main problems, um, I'm going to address those based off of just kind of what stuck out to me in an email. Now, if when I sit down with them, if, if they want to talk about more things and other things, uh, that's totally fine. They're the ones who sent the email in the first place. I'll respond to those things. I'm not going to say, oh, those are off limits. Um, I, I will go to them, and if they want to bring up all 40 points, I, you know, that's, that's up to them. But I'm not going to come with a, a printout of the email with my responses. And uh, the other thing I don't do is I don't uh, reply on an email and uh, go through line by line, you know, my answer is bold in red, you know, and just kind of go line by line. I used to do that a lot. Um, and there's a part of me that I like to be thorough. I like to be clear. So there's a part of me that, that, that wants to do that. And I'm not saying there's never a time to, to do something like that. Uh, I'm not saying there's ever, never a time to read an email two or three times. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying in general, these are my defaults. Uh, and then I'll call an audible if it's necessary. Um, but, um, but I don't, I don't want to exegete someone because I don't like when people do that to me when they say, well, you know, but you said, uh, this rather than that or whatever. And, um, you know, we, we make mistakes. We say things, um, out of our emotions, we get in a flurry typing out things. Uh, I just want to give people grace and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I don't want to hold these things over people. Um, so I really do what I can to be very gracious, very patient, uh, very, uh, loving and, uh, not read too into things. Um, and there's a wisdom in trying to discern what's really going on or being said, but then don't hold that to them, like put words in their mouth. Um, but I, I really try to aim to be incredibly gracious, um, assume the best of them. Um, I assume that there's sometimes a, it's a coming from a place of hurt, maybe from someone who's, who's not me. Uh, maybe I did something or said something that reminds them of something else. You know, I just, I don't know. Uh, but I really do my best to just um, not take it personal and then uh, not try to go into it uh, like I, I want to win something. Uh, now, every once in a while, um, there are situations um, where I think written record is better than in person. Um, you know, depending on the type of person it is or the type of relationship, uh, there's some uh, people or some relationships, there's some, um, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, type of um, kind of aggression that happens or maybe manipulation, those types of things where it's it's kind of important sometimes to have a written record of a certain conversation. So so there are some things where um, uh, certain situations where I'll say I will only meet with someone in person if there's another person there uh, because oftentimes the story changes later or whatever. So, uh, so I'll either have another person with me um, or uh, sometimes I'll try to keep things uh, with a little bit more written record on text or email uh, if I feel like it's just a, a wise thing for me to do because uh, oftentimes later it's like, well, but you said this, but you said that. And, and then so if it's going to be like that kind of a conversation, um, I try to, you know, try to have a little bit of both maybe, some written uh, record but also some in-person uh, to kind of de-escalate. But, um, but it's just, you know, a conflict and confrontation is, is difficult. It's very messy. Uh, so you need a lot of wisdom 
excuse me, and um, and how to respond. But but those are some things, some general things where um, I uh, want to um, start in a place of uh, I, I I minimize my my email responses to. Um, I don't try to engage in uh, a lengthy. Uh, response. Uh, I just try to keep things simple. And if they want to meet in person, I'll meet in person. Um, but I don't uh, write n- novels back. Um, I write novels when I'm writing my church emails to everybody. <laughs> uh, but when if it's a confrontation type thing, I don't write a novel at that point because um, I, I want to either meet in person or somehow de-escalate uh, somehow and kind of get to the root of the issue rather than kind of get stuck in the weeds. Because a lot of those um, emails and things like that, we, we get stuck in the weeds really easy. So um but over the years, uh, you know, I've um, I've overlooked um, so many uh, very insulting and and hurtful things, um, personal attacks um, uh, from people uh, in in lots of different ways. Um, I can recall so many scathing meetings, uh, text messages, emails, um, conversations. Uh, where people will just uh, read me the riot act uh, and list out all their complaints against me or complaints against whatever. Um, and uh, a lot of it's been very uh, hurtful. Um, and a lot of it's really hard not to take personal because sometimes it's intended to be personal. And and uh, and I know all of us, we've gone through these things. It, maybe it's been your spouse who has said certain things or your, or your kids or um, your relatives, um, a brother or sister, or your parents, or uh, and so we we face this stuff all the time. We're going to be hurled insults, whether it's for our faith or for, for something totally different. Um, we're going to be hurled uh, insults, and um, we're going to have conflict in relationships uh, from now until the day we die, uh, because we're human, and uh, because there's a war going on inside each of us. And so the people that um, you are having these interactions with, um, they have a war going on inside them as well. Uh, there's a war over their heart, uh, over their worship, um, over uh, even their soul. Uh, and so uh, the enemy is going to be trying to use all of us to get at each other and divide us. So we have to be aware of this, that these personal things, these personal attacks, uh, one thing I remind myself all the time uh, is that um, you know, if someone's acting sinfully towards me, uh, if someone has so so there's a difference between someone coming to me with grace and love uh, confronting me on something. Uh, they're doing something very reasonably. They're doing something very maturely, respectfully, uh, out of care. That is that's I'm not talking about that. that that's that's good. I, I I value that when that happens. But when someone comes at me sinfully um, and kind of more um, uh, rudely, the ways that First Corinthians 13 describes, uh, I remind myself in those moments, this isn't about me. Uh, this is about something that's broken between them and God, and I'm usually just kind of taking the attack. Uh, but there's something else going on in their life, because if sin's involved, that's a separation between them and God, and I just kind of happen to be getting the collateral damage. If someone comes at me, um, you know, with love and respect, and um, you know, graciously towards me and crush me, then I'm 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 all for that. I, I I'm all for that. But whenever it is something that's done sinfully towards me, uh, I know that deep down it's actually not about me. Uh, it helps me to not take it personal, uh, even if the accusations are about me. Uh, and and I also want to listen too, because even if they come sinfully, they might have some truth in what they're saying. So I have to examine. Uh, the things that are being said and say, well, you actually have a point. You're saying it sinfully, but you have a point. Uh, it's the sinful attack part that I have to know is not about me, uh, even if they have some truth in their statements. So again, very complex stuff, um, something I'd, I'd love to maybe do another um, video or whatever uh, teaching about, but um, but really, really uh, difficult to 
work through some of this stuff. So hard to not take it personal, um, but we have to choose love and grace. Um, I know that I have a bigger picture that I'm looking at, uh, and it's not me trying to prove myself. Uh, I've got I've got a bigger picture to look at. I don't want to put any obstacle in anyone's way, so I'm not going to come out guns blazing trying to defend myself. Uh, I have. I have a bigger win and victory that I'm looking at, and that's to see people reconcile between them and, and Christ. So if they're acting sinfully towards me, I want to see them, their heart get healed uh, between them and the Lord. And if that happens, then chances are things will be healed between me and them. Um, but um, but I don't want to come out and try to defend myself. Um, that's just that's not my my end goal. I'm not saying I don't do that, but I'm just saying that's not my end goal. So um, so to page 32 here. Um, uh, it's at the top here, at times such behavior has to be confronted and rebuked, but sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing and choose to overlook a person's fault. In this case, because I knew the person well with this guy who confronted about the music, the wisest course of action wasn't to pursue the matter or to demand that he apologize. The right course of action was to follow Peter's plea. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's from 1 Peter 4. So love for this brother allowed me to understand his deeply felt perspective on worship and to bear with his character weaknesses. Love and love and only love covers a multitude of sins. So you can overlook people's character flaws. And I do this all the time because I know that I have character flaws too. So I hope that people can overlook my character flaws. They're, and so I, I look over, if I, uh, if I know someone's having a, time, a moment of weakness, right? They're coming after me. They're accusing me, whatever. I just, I kind of assume they've got a moment of weakness. Something's going on in their life. I just, I try to have that be my default. Uh, in the church, just as in the secular world, we often have to deal with difficult people. Every person is sinful and imperfect. We all have eccentricities and character flaws. If we don't, above all, bear with one another in love and allow love to cover our offenses, we can't live in unity. Uh, skip down to the next paragraph. Although love covers a multitude of sins, we must remember that love does not cover all sins. As Ken Sandy, the author of Peacemaker, explains, to truly overlook an offense, to truly overlook it, means to deliberately decide not to talk about it, not dwell on it, or let it grow into pent-up bitterness. If you can't let go of an offense in this way, if it's, or if it's too serious to be overlooked, or if it continues to be part of a pattern in the other person's life, then you'll need to go talk to the other person about it in a loving and constructive manner. Okay, so there's sometimes that you should actually address certain things that happen, especially if it is a pattern in their life or if it's too serious of a sin to overlook. So we don't overlook everything. So this is tough to discern for us. Uh, and you're not going to do this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly at all. We have to walk humbly. We have to fear God more than man. Uh, sometimes uh, we overlook sin for fear of man. We don't want to offend someone or upset them, and that's not good. Sometimes we confront people out of legalism and self-righteousness. That's also not good. So it takes wisdom of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, and it also takes true love and a relationship with the person to do this well. Uh, a good example of this is uh, Proverbs 26, uh, verse 4 and 5. Uh, it has two Scriptures back-to-back -back that seem to kind of contradict each other. Uh, Verse 4 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So that one's saying, look, if someone says something foolish, they try to get you in an argument, don't respond to it. Don't, don't engage because you're just going to become a fool as well. You're going to get trapped in that whole thing. But then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, 
lest he be wise in his own eyes. So sometimes when someone comes at you with something foolish, you should engage with them so you can correct them so they don't keep going in the wisdom of their own eyes. So it seems like it contradicts, but really it's just showing that we need wisdom to know when, if, how, where, why we should speak up or not speak up. We should should engage in some kind of foolish conversation or not. And that is not easy to do. So we need prayer. Uh, I mean, need wisdom from God. There's not a default, uh, well, this is just how I am. Well, that's too bad. That's how you are. You need to be sanctified and learn how to be something different sometimes according to what, what God desires for you. All right, so look at uh, number five on page 33. Love denies self for the good of others. Uh, go to the uh, second to last paragraph there. Uh, love, the Bible tells us, doesn't insist on its own way and does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is even prepared to die for a brother or sister. That's in 1 John chapter 3. In keeping with his teaching, Paul describes in Romans chapter 14 through chapter 15 how to walk in love and put the spiritual welfare of others before our own rights and liberties. Go to the next page, the top. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, uh, the issue that was in dispute at the time, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So in a similar vein, he addresses the abuse of Christian liberty uh, that was uh, taking place in the churches of Galatia. He says this in Galatians 5, You are called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Out of love we set aside our rights and our preferences in order to serve others. Uh, For Paul, freedom in Christ meant loving, slave-like service to others, not self-indulgence. It's the flesh, which is always preoccupied with the self and ready for a fight, the flesh that demands its rights and freedoms. Exercising his rights was not Paul's chief concern. The guiding principles that governed his actions were building up believers in their faith, winning the loss to Christ, and glorifying God in all things. The foundation of Christian ethics is not freedom or rights, but costly, self-sacrificing love that builds up rather than tears down the Lord's people. If we apply the principle of love to the disagreement over drinking wine, which was a story previous in this chapter, Christ-like love requires that the couples in the story who are free to drink wine don't pressure the non-drinkers to drink or mock them for their views. So, uh, for instance, all this stuff, I mean, how much are we seeing all over the place in social media and in conversations uh, if you're a, a, a mask wearer, uh, you're mocking those and, and um, disparaging those who don't wear them or think that they aren't useful. Then the people who don't want to wear them, they're mocking people uh, for wearing masks or whatever. Uh, we're seeing this, and this is written years before this pandemic. This is such a perfect example of what we're seeing today. We see both people on both sides um, acting sinfully towards each other uh, and... Um, and then looking at others and insisting that you do things my way and then um, talking bad about them if they don't do things or see things the way that they do. Uh, Not just with that, but with politics, with whatever else. Uh, So go to the bottom here. Uh, When matters of personal conscience and lifestyle choices become an issue, the New Testament remedy is a costly love, a love that radically and voluntarily surrenders one's rights and freedoms for the spiritual edification of others. To practice liberty-limiting love is to imitate Christ's self-sacrificing love on the cross for our salvation. So we've seen this put on display, uh, this opportunity 
time and time again these past months. We've seen it often overlooked. Uh, it's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for Christians, particularly, I think, in the West uh, and in America, uh, where individualism, uh, independence, uh, privacy, rights, uh, they're heralded and protected um, and fought for in ways that we don't really see elsewhere in the world or in history. Uh, these things, um, they're not even, they're not bad in themselves. I'm not saying these things are bad. Um, some of them are actually even gifts of God, but we tend to protect them at the expense of serving others, uh, at the expense of laying our lives down for others, uh, at the expense of serving the purposes of the witness of Christ. We tend to put these things above all these other biblical principles. Uh, and this isn't just an American thing, an American problem. It's, it's a human thing. Uh, this is an Adam and Eve thing. Uh, we tend to self-protect uh, and look out for ourselves first before we consider others. That's just a human nature thing. But it's just that in our culture um, and in our society, um, we prop it up even more. It's even part of our kind of cultural nomenclature. Um, and um, it seems, I think because of that, it seems particularly uh, humiliating or offensive for us to lay down those things for others because that's so part of the fabric of who we are as a nation. Uh, and so kind of our national identity um, so a lot of times gets elevated above our Christian identity. Uh, it feels really awkward to lay aside some of our national identity because it's so ingrained in our fabric. But God's word should be more ingrained in the fabric of who we are. Uh, but that's why it oftentimes feels a little more humiliating or offensive um, to uh, lay aside certain things uh, because it goes against what we've uh, been raised in uh, very much. Uh, but this is exactly what Christ-like living looks like. It's being called to even lay aside even the most tightly held things that we have. Uh, so uh, number six, the last one there, um, is uh, practicing what you preach. Um, Christians, sadly today, uh, I don't think have the greatest reputation uh, in our, our, our world. Uh, and a lot of that, of course, is because the message of the gospel, excuse me, is offensive. Uh, so those, that's definitely a true thing. There's Christians are never going to be popular in our culture. Uh, we're never going to have the greatest reputation in general just because uh, of the nature of the gospel. Uh, but there's also no secret that there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, in Christianity today. Uh, we speak a lot of truth uh, without very much love. Uh, and we say one thing and then we do something else. We see it all over the place. Um, I mean, it's not, and, and Christians aren't the only ones that are hypocrites. Every single human being is a hypocrite. No human being lives up to their own moral standards. So we're all hypocrites. Uh, but we just have a particular target on us because we are more vocal and loud oftentimes uh, with our uh, beliefs and morals. And so uh, we tend to not speak these things in too much humility and meekness, but using a lot of arrogance and self-righteousness. And, um, and so because of that, there's a lot of uh, very kind of widely known hypocrisy, uh, and it becomes um, really distasteful to uh, a lot of uh, non-believers. We have to speak truth. We're always going to speak truth. Uh, we, we, we have to, uh, but we have to speak it in love. Um, Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that as you love one another, uh, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, there was an Indian philosopher, it wasn't Gandhi, although he's attributed to it. Yeah, he famously said, famously said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, another friend of mine um, posted once, instead of putting Christ back in Christmas, how about we focus on putting Christ back in Christian? Uh, and the points are taken. Uh, this past year, I think more than ever, we've seen a bit of a, a shift, I think, uh, in the church. Uh, the church has become so much more influenced, I think, by politics rather than vice versa. 
the church has allowed um, the ways, the rhetoric of the political world, the ways of social media and the news to affect the church. We have kind of become a little bit more um, uh, divided, cynical, judgmental, and we've allowed this to happen. And this is what's reflected in our culture. So the church has kind of followed suit, unfortunately. The church is, a capital C church is acting more like um, its own nation uh, with opposing political parties uh, rather than uh, a place that's supposed to be a place of hope, um, a place of peace, uh, a place of Christian love. Um, but rather the church is just kind of a place that's just more of the same, just with um, some scriptural, uh, biblical flavorings to it. Uh, so I hope that this can change starting in our own hearts, in our marriages, our families, uh, in our local church, and hopefully then beyond, that we'd become more and more reflective of Christ, who's our Prince of Peace, uh, and that we would be truly ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of peace. So uh, I hope that um, chapter 2 was um, uh, good for you, challenging, convicting, uh, but also gives you an excitement to pursue the things of the Lord. So um, so uh, until chapter 3 comes, and I don't know how frequent I'm going to be doing these, but, um, but I hope that uh, these scriptures would find a home in your heart um, and uh, that uh, the truth of them would be transforming you uh, and your family uh, in profound ways that only the Holy Spirit can do. Uh, so until chapter 3, God bless you guys, and I will see you next time.